had many actual conversations. I met you when I was visiting Austin, training with a few clients and buddies and stuff. So I think this is going to be an awesome conversation just based on what I've seen you post and talk about on Instagram. I see, I think we think the same on a lot of things. And then we have some things that I don't yet know how you think about it. So it's going to be fun to uh, find that out. But yeah, Tampa is a great area for what I do. Some of the best information, some of the best gyms, it all seems to come out from this area. Yeah. Whether it's uh, the actual study stuff in U- USF, whether it's uh, Joe Bennett, the hypertrophy coach, he's here. Ben Bukowski in the MI40 gym. A lot of seminars are done out of there. Uh, FAM, Tampa, uh, the second gym. I bounce between two gyms generally. They have some awesome seminars. It's co-owned by Weapon X, so Derek Oslin, the 212 Pro. I heard of him. Yeah, they're both awesome. Him and Anastasia. I've done a few Instagram lives and stuff with her, but yeah, it's an awesome area. If you ever make it out here, a few days so you can go check out like multiple of the gyms. That's fucking dope. Oh, I would love that. I think I might, I might take a little road trip. My fiance was just talking about going to Spain to visit her family, and I won't be because I'll be in prep. And or we'll try to finagle something. If if her family's cool with making my potatoes. Or help me out, like we get groceries and stuff like that, because I was Spanish. Then I'll go uh, and you know visit some of the gyms in Sevilla or whatever. But if if I can't, then I'll just you know maybe I'll take a road trip to Tampa. It, it's not that bad. I think it's like a sixteen hour hour trip from where I am because I was originally planning to drive it mm-hmm. when I was going out there because. I have clients, like a group of clients in like the Panhandle, like Destin, Florida area. Yeah, yeah. Because I lived there for a little while when I, I moved there for construction sales, something that I didn't enjoy at all, but it made money. So uh, it was a good move at the time. It helped me set up, get into a place where I could coach full time because it gave me a little wiggle room. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I was there. So I still have a group of clients. So I was going to drive train there one of the days, then continue the drive and kind of split it up. Yeah. After thinking about it, uh, it'd be at least two, potentially three days each way. Like, driving. I love driving. And when I moved from New York to Austin, I drove 26 hours straight. And no brakes, no nothing, just to stop for gas or to pee or whatever. And I'm good like that. Like once I get locked into an activity or once I get locked into what I'm doing, I don't, I don't move until it's done. See, I generally don't like openly. I actually enjoy driving because I already only listen to like audible books and podcasts anyway, yeah. but it, I knock out like a bunch of stuff. And every time I get, make one of those longer road trips, I, I feel like I always gain something out of it just based on that time it's set aside. I get to like take in a lot of content mm-hmm. and I drove. So I s- drove from Minnesota down to the Destin cause I was originally from Minnesota mm-hmm. and that, that was about 24, 25 hours. And I did stop one night. So I did one night like halfway through some weird place in Tennessee or something. It was rough. I stopped at a, I remember I stopped in the middle of Tennessee. I think it was at a Wendy's. I stopped at a Wendy's, like, eat my meal, and, like, 
people were so nice. They like stopped to ask me what I was having. And it was like three in the morning too. What are you having? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. And I was still from New York. I was fresh from New York. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm just sitting here eating chicken, guy. Just leave me alone. That's hilarious. So uh, when I was driving down, until I moved to, well, long story short, I moved to Omaha once. That was the first time I ever left Minnesota. Like, even vacations, anything. I grew up dirt poor, homeless half the time. Like, we never traveled. I maybe crossed the, um, like, Wisconsin border a couple times on accident. Yeah. But, like, yeah, I didn't really travel anywhere outside of the state. So the first time I was actually outside of the state is when I moved. Literally, I packed up everything I owned and I moved. And then uh, driving down to Florida, obviously, that was the most different states I've ever seen. So I stopped like a bunch of times for gas if you drive 24 hours. And I had a Audi Q7 at the time. So like it wasn't great on gas. It wasn't yeah. bad, but it was a huge SUV. They're not freaking... Uh, whatever smart car but it was like no accent no accent no accent one spot in tennessee the most crazy like comic book accent like hillbilly like sayings i was in absolute shock and then i continued my drive and it went away it was one one spot like one i don't know what part of the state it was literally i thought i was in the comic book remember like uh, what was it punked yeah, I literally thought I was going to be a part of a TV show. That's fucking funny. See, I I went from upstate New York from Poughkeepsie, and then I drove straight down. And I had already been to Charleston a bunch of times. I already lived in California. I studied abroad in China. I've already been to Florida. I'd already Holy been. Shit. I'd already been a bunch of places um, and shit. So like, for me, it was like. No big deal. I just kind of like found a room on Craigslist at night, put my put my resume on Indeed and poached. I had 27 job interviews all lined up. I pretty much applied to a bunch of major cities. And I had the most job offers out of Austin. So I found a room, a room for rent on Craigslist from this guy who got divorced and he was renting a room out for 700 bucks because he just couldn't afford his mortgage. And I was like, sweet. His name was Jake. He was on a business trip in Manhattan. We met up for coffee in Manhattan. We talked about everything. I gave him five grand. <laughs> I was like, I'm moving now. And then uh, and then I uh, I just packed up all my shit, whatever I couldn't uh, whatever I couldn't fit into my car, I gave away to friends. Because uh, long story short, like a lot of the reason why I, I left New York, um, I, I've never alluded to this, never told you, was uh, I had a I had a longtime girlfriend who committed suicide that May. So this was five months later. This was October. Uh, so she committed suicide in May. And then after that, in June or July, I got arrested. And then all my all my charges and everything else got dismissed. And it was just pretty much water underneath the bridge. And so the very week I had my trial and I, everything got dismissed and everything got like fucking washed out, I packed up all my shit and I left. I was fucking out. Makes sense. With yeah. situations like that, honestly, I've told multiple people moving states was the best decision I ever made. Oh, Getting in the new scenery, learning how to network and meet new people and get a, like it has been. I moved states twice, and each state I've moved, my life has got significantly better. But yeah, it makes sense. I 
part of it's not as intense as your story, but part of the reason I left Minnesota too, I there was an ex involved, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm done with this place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally pick up what you're dropping. Absolutely, hundred. Literally, that situation happened, and within 48 hours, I had my car packed and I was leaving. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Yeah, you get the you you know when it's time, for sure. You definitely know when it's time. It's time to move on. It's time to like kind of level up. And I feel like everybody's kind of given the same opportunities. I never wanted to be somebody who just like lived in their hometown for the rest of their lives. You know what I'm saying? I just I, I always want I always want to upgrade. I always want to like, what's the next fucking level? You know what I'm saying? Now that I moved, I could never imagine if I would have stayed where I was the entire time. <sighs> like, it would be so weird. I don't think I'd be nearly where I am. So, when I left, I had a really fucking awesome job. Probably the, one of the best jobs I ever had. I worked at Crew in the, and I loved that job. That the, the, the staff there and everybody there was like my family. And when everything happened and I was going through everything I went through, like they were my number one support system. They were my family. They, they all got together and even like rallied up money to, to, to take me to, uh, so that I could go to the funeral in, in San Francisco. And they even like, they just took care of me. They just, they just understood them and they got it. And they were, they were, they were there for me. Like even the boss, the boss was like a father I never had. He, he pushed me through times and days that I, I wouldn't have made without him. And uh, I remember the day I decided to move to Austin. I was driving along the the bridge, the Hudson Valley Bridge, and I was pretty much had decided, I was pretty set that I was going to pull over and just jump out of the fucking car. And I, I was already planning on, on how high I was going to have to jump, how, like, the barrier, where I would stop, like, how many cars in front, this, that, and the other thing. And for whatever reason, I just, I just didn't, I just didn't decide, I decided not to. Uh, and so I made it to work. And I remember I had a breakdown at like the beverage station. My boss at the time, Thomas, grabbed my shoulders. And I remember he said something like, you're going to, you're going to fucking make it. You're going to be strong. You're strong. You're going to make this. And I remember like that was enough. Just like, just the sincerity in his words was enough. That I fucking got it together and I made it fucking happen. And that was the day I decided I was going to move to Austin, Texas. I was going to move to Texas. And it was one of the most, the like crazy events that happened. It was one of the best nights I'd ever had at that restaurant uh, financially. And it was almost like a sign. It was almost like a sign. And it was, and I took it as that. I took it as my blessing. I took it as a sign. And I just kind of uh, went from there. So, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made was to, to leave New York and to leave Austin. But like that job was so, was the hardest thing to leave. And I remember when I decided I was going to leave, there was a guy, I forgot his name. He was a, he was a spine and brain surgeon and he was a millionaire and he used to sit at the bar all the time and bring like all these like super beautiful women. He was always like super loaded and all this other stuff. And he asked me, he said, why the fuck would you leave? I was like, oh, you know, blah, 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 like kind of making short talk. And he's like, no, he's like, you have the best fucking scenario. He's like, you're the only guy here. You make plenty of money. You have no responsibilities. You have nothing going on. And you just like you have one. you work at the one of the best restaurants in the fucking city. He's like, this is a sweet get up. Like, he's like, there's no reason why you should leave. 
And so then I told him my story. I told him why I was leaving and what happened and everything in full detail. And he put his black card on the bar and he slid it to me and he said, you take this American Express for 24 hours and you do whatever the fuck you want. And I, to this day, I regret not taking him up on his offer. I was like, no, I can't do it, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and instead, I just kind of paved my own way. And I would never have it any other way, man. I would never have it any other way. Oh, let's play a hypothetical. Looking back at it now, what would you have done with Sith? Like, if you did be like, appreciate it, and you were going to go uh, – Take him up on his offer. What Dude, would you just what would go to? <laughs> Super simple, and I feel bad. It would never be anything extravagant. I would probably like get some good sushi, or like go to New York City and go to Morimoto's, or like something cool, like to where I'm like getting some really, really high end quality food. Because um, food's my first passion. My dad's a chef, and I grew up in the restaurant industry, and that's that would be my thing. It would probably be food related. Hey, the experiences, that's awesome. Like, yeah. You get to go experience, be around. Like, uh, most people aren't in a financial situation where they would be able to justify going to, like, some of those crazy high-end restaurants. So, like, I can see that being an awesome experience. Yeah. My brain always... And everything else back home in the East Coast is, like, I remember, like... They served like live sushi, uh, live scallops at one of them, and it's like an experience, man. It's like it's very, very like it's a very big deal. So you know, it's like it, it, here in Texas and everything else, like sushi isn't really that big a deal because it's it's all imported and there's, really besides Uchi, there's nowhere that's like fucking awesome. Um. So yeah, I would probably I would just try some like it doesn't have to be sushi it could be whatever but i would try like i'd probably go to like some super fucking awesome restaurants probably not spend too much money because i'm just not i just i'm not like super super lavish or you know whatever it is and so i just wouldn't do that well how about yourself so i'm also a pretty big fan of food but like i like high quality food so like I, it wouldn't be like I mean, you see what my story is. I enjoy, I'm in off-season. I have plenty of calories to work with. Mm-hmm. I enjoy what I eat, like the wild-caught salmon or like grass-fed steak. Like I would – and I enjoy cooking myself. So uh, I don't know. I would probably go buy like an awesome like ribeye or something uh, and set up, probably cook for myself and maybe someone else. Uh, I just enjoy cooking. Like I'm not a chef or anything, but I got the basics and I enjoy cooking the way I eat and I'd probably want other people there. So I would have friends and stuff over like grill up a bunch of steaks or like something like that. If it was a Saturday night, some UFC was on the go-to. We used to have a little crew back in Minnesota that uh, we were all competitors. So we all viability competed and we had all split the big UFC fights and we'd bring like a couple of my clients uh, were hunters. So they'd bring a bunch of wild game. We'd buy a bunch of steaks, uh, cook up like a monster thing of rice and just like 
binge eat on like just high quality <laughs> steak, rice, potatoes, like whatever. It though, and, awesome. Yeah, I still enjoy it. I don't have too many people here in Tampa that are like into the fights or like have a place that we'd all like gather. So I tend to uh, just zoom with my brother, Mike and our old chiropractor slash friend, Bo. So we just literally uh, all get the fights and we zoom and like chat and kind of hang out over that setup. And then uh, I would probably try to, invest in something that I could make more out of. Like I sell like hoodies and shirts and stuff. So I don't know. I have a hard time spending money on stuff that doesn't make my life better, even if it wasn't my money. So yeah, like if it was and I was making money off it, I feel like I would have that guilt where it'd be like, you know, it was given to you as a gift. You know what I'm saying? Instead of like and it's a credit card. Instead of like if it was like if it's going to be business, it's going to be things like I would worry about like the ownership of like, of, uh, or, or really the responsibility I had, which was like, it's a gift and treated as such instead of like making money and, and working from it. You know what I'm saying? Is like, I would kind of see it as a moral obligation to like, as it being a gift, it probably feels better for them for you to enjoy it to the utmost than for you to try to make it into something else. that's a work. You know what I'm saying? But what if you enjoy what you do? That's and true. and that could be like that gift could set you up to better your life, uh, not just better your night. Like if it could put you, in, like, I, say you got a four thousand, five thousand dollar check, like you've never had over a thousand dollars in your account before that. Like you get something like that, and you've spent time trying to understand how to better your life. That that relatively small amount could change your life. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. I could see that. That's justified. I wouldn't see it that way. I love what I do. I enjoy what I do. But if I was going through what I was going through at the time, I was not thinking about, nor did I care about money. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's there's phases in everyone's life where that's the last thing on their mind. Yeah, I remember, like, I didn't give a two fucks about money. Did not care. Uh, just out of curiosity, you like you didn't come from like a super super poor upbringing, did you? Um, so it was weird. Uh, we were, but we weren't. So my dad was a chef, and he worked very hard in Manhattan. He worked for kosher caterers for over a decade, and he had two restaurants. So we were never without. We never had didn't have food. We lived in a nice house. I had video games. Like we had all the essentials, right? We had, we went on vacations. We went to the great escape, went to Disneyland. There was no, we were in aspects. We were poor. We were poor in support. We were poor in, we were poor in getting the tools and really like the lessons that you need to learn from parents to be like morally like sound. And so like, yeah, we had like, my dad had money. And then when my parents got divorced at 15, we had nothing. Because, like, my dad had money. We did not have money. So we lived in this, like, awesome house that my mom, uh, that my dad had built for my mom. But my mom couldn't pay her electric, couldn't pay her heat, pay for groceries. So we were just sitting there having to beg dad for fucking every child support payment, uh, you know, that ever came 
So it was it was weird. It, like we had things for a while, but my dad was never home and my mom was never present. And and like we had friends and family, we had like per se money, but it was it was spent in the wrong things and it was done in the wrong ways and that we never got actual time and we had never actually like developed to be healthy, well rounded adults that like were given tools. So it was weird in that like we didn't grow up poor by any means, but then when we became adults, we were not as, uh, me and my brothers were not as equipped emotionally as everybody else, which was super weird. That makes a lot of sense. So similar, uh, not really similar because I was also poor money-wise, but like in that setting around drugs, like both parents addicted at the time, like never around. So I don't know, I got so motivated to never be in a situation like that before it's always something that's in the back of my head yeah and so like yeah this especially one thing my dad was a recovering addict and was a recovering alcoholic and things that my parents just do like they used to scream and bicker at each other all the time or like when the divorce happened everything became like super super jaded and one parent would talk shit about the other one and you know, money became the priority of everybody's fucking agenda, and nobody did anything unless there was like money involved or things like that. It was very, very and it was weird because like, it went from wanting to trust family, want to be there for your family, for and then to not be able to even like look or trust them completely. Like it took me years to recover from that. You know what I'm saying? So it's so funny because like my fiance now she's from Spain, uh, as in Europe, family very close very very close very tight and they talk on a daily basis and it's so weird for her to my find family dynamic where my family is not here nor there continue and i don't really pay them any mind they're there but i don't trust them you know what i'm saying because i have good reason not to and it's so weird for her to watch because she's so close with her family she's so close to everything that they're doing on a daily basis so ask me oh how's your mom and i'm like honey I haven't spoken to her for in four or five months. <laughs> like, and like, that's how it is. And unless you understand, unless you know the dynamic, you, you can't understand because a lot of people would overhear this thing that I'm a bad person. But in the same sense too, like if you, if you lived in my shoes, had my dynamic, you'd be like, oh, that's a healthy boundary. And so like, that's what I had to establish early on in my adulthood was like, there needed to be healthy boundaries between my, my previous family and the future that I wanted. Oh, I understand that very, very well. My brother actually wrote a book, Mom Listen, uh, that details some of the upbringing. It was more of his upbringing before I was really born because he's a little bit older than me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a lot of the same things that some in some situations probably even got worse after he moved out because he moved out around 15 because... They're bouncing around place to place. He was playing sports. He was trying to make something of football because he was really, really good at it. But they would move around, like get evicted out of places, all these things bounce around, and you never get any looks if you're going to a new school twice twice a year, you're at a different school. Mm -hmm. So he decided that he was going to stay with uh, one of his best friends and teammates with their family and stay there for like the next two years to try to uh, have some stability. And 
he just never came back. And I moved out when I was 14 in a similar situation. Just, I had to get away from it. Like you are who you surround yourself with. There was nothing positive in my environment. I was obese still, like no one, like every aspect of your life that could be in a bad situation, health-wise, finance-wise, support-wise, like drug addiction, like getting your house raided in the middle of the night by the police, like all that stuff. So I figured moving out of 14, I ended up selling weed for a little while to like feed myself. But it was that after I was moved out for a little while, I reconnected with that same brother, Mike, and he's the one that like underdog books, we're doing a bunch of stuff. It's all around like self-development. We're going to have, that's a long story. People on the podcast have heard me talk about it plenty of times. So maybe off air, I can uh, give you a little more of it. But so where did bodybuilding come into the um, thing for you? Like what point of your life did you start weight training? When did you do your first show? Like when did you get that that urge to take bodybuilding or competing seriously? So I started training. In Taekwondo, for from seven years old to 14, 15 like years old, and I got up to the black, the belt for black, which was called Bodan. It was a red and black belt, and I competed in it. I did it fairly well. I was decent at, at martial arts. And then the very next year, my sensei, my master, uh, Master Diedrich, uh, committed suicide, uh, and for a year, I had. No purpose, and I, my family was big into junk food, so we had pizza and McDonald's and all kinds of stuff all the time because you know my family were, were trying to kind of uh kind of medicate the, the the divorce with like one parent gives you you know treats and the other parent gives you treats and you're gonna just get at that age food whenever it comes around, and so you know each parent's trying to spoil you in their own way with like or whatever it is, so I gained a lot of weight, and my self-image was horrible. And women started to do a kitty date, where, like, they would, like, placate or, or – and it was done in, in a nice way where, like, you know, uh, like, I was a joke. So, like, they would kind of, like, oh, like, you know, like, uh, like you know, I like your blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing, and it actually turned rejection. And so I was tired of being rejected all the time from women not feeling good in my skin. I always knew I was fat. Uh, a cup, uh, man boobs and the whole thing. And so I started, I had a weight set in the basement and I was super pissed off about the divorce and started training every other day. All I knew how to do was bench press and curls. So I started weight training every other day in the basement and I really, really enjoyed it. And my dad showed me a few things here and there, but nothing too crazy. And I, uh, and somehow, some way, I graduated going to the gym, which was Crush Fitness. And it was across the street from my school, which was fucking awesome. And the best part of that gym was there were a lot of pivotal, pivotal people in that gym. So it was, uh, I would, I would go there a lot during senior year because again, you can make your own schedule. And I had, instead of going to PE, I would go to the gym and I had three, at noon, I had a two to three hour period in the middle of the day that I could go to the gym. So I would. Are you still there? 
Okay, this guy so like, you, you cut out for a little bit there. How's your connection? Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's good now. I was getting a phone call and I just, I just, uh, I just, uh, sorry. Hey, no worries. We're all good. I didn't put uh, up. But yeah, I met this guy, Gerard Martin, who is a freak of nature. And, uh, and then I met uh, my dad's friends who were New York State Troopers and they were competitive. Uh, they were competitive bodybuilders and they, um, they took me under their wing to teach me how to train. And then there were, there was a woman there, Gabriella, who was my first bodybuilding coach ever. And she was a IFBB pro out of Germany and she had retired and was living, the, uh, living her life with the, the man of her dreams and had moved to New York ever since. Uh, she lived in Vegas and used to train with Iris Kyle. And then once she met her husband, she moved to New York um, and gave up bodybuilding. And so I had all these people and all these things around me and I was training with my best friends and I kind of just got addicted to not necessarily bodybuilding, but moving weight. Uh, I just wanted to be fucking strong and in, in good shape. And I was, I was decently strong. Uh, my form wasn't the best. It was a lot of ego lifting. Um, but I was, I was decently strong when I started lifting and everything else. And I was just strong for a while until I started working at a Red Robin. And I was working at a Red Robin because I was I was technically homeless and I was living with this Puerto Rican family after high school and it was the only job I could walk to. So I was waiting tables at a Red Robin and I had this manager, his name was Wills Carruthers and I'll never forget him. And he said, I said, oh, I'm going to go see the local Poughkeepsie show, the New York Grand Prix. I was going to go watch it. And he said, and he thought I said I was going to compete in it. He said, listen, man, you're kind of just a husky kid. You're always just going to kind of be a husky kid. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. And I like, look, bro, kid. And I was like, fuck that guy. Fuck him. And I took a diet from the back of the animal pack, uh, a little, uh, a, a little pamphlet, like, uh, what was it? Uh, Frank, uh, Frank McGrath's diet from the back of a pamphlet. And I just did chicken, broccoli, and sweet potato, 12 weeks. <laughs> and I, I got, I got, I didn't get in shape, shape, but I lost 50 pounds. And that was a huge start. And I did step on stage and I didn't look amazing, but I looked, I had abs. I looked a lot better than I did. So it was my start. And then from there, I continued to train. I continued to do everything I needed to do. And then I did a prep with Gabriella at 22, 23. And I was one of them. And I fucking worked my ass off. I was doing anatomy and physiology at the same time. Going, going to community college, working a full-time job at a restaurant called Double O and doing prep. And I came in fucking peeled, peeled out of my mind. And I, uh, I didn't win, but I remember IFBB Pro Ben White, who we, we had known each other before because he's out of Albany and I trained with him before. And a couple of the pros coming up to me and asking me, how did you get that lean? And I looked at them and I was like, I just suffered. And for whatever reason, that was the most like fulfilling thing in my, in my mind was that I had the, I, I had the propensity to suffer. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the biggest. I would never be fucking like, you know, Jay Cutler or anything, but I could suffer and I could bring something impressive. So that was, that was when I fell in love with that.
Yeah, that's awesome. And in your first couple of shows to nail conditioning to a point where you get that many comments, that's that's awesome. Yeah. For I remember waking up at two, three weeks out every uh, at night, all the time in the middle of the night. My baby brother asking Vince, "Why aren't you sleeping?" I'd be like, "Well, every time I shut my eyes, I think of French toast." <laughs> I guess I'm not gonna sleep. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! If no one's been to that point in prep, like most of the time, sleep is hard to come by because you're just laying in bed. And your body's just like eating itself. Yeah. I would wait. I would be laying in bed for like four or five hours, got like 20 minutes of sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just go pose. I'm like, eh, let's see how it looks. Like, I always look insane in the middle of the night. And then it'll be like four in the morning. I'm like, ah, well, I can go knock out my cardio. So go knock out my cardio, come back, cook my meal one. And then after my meal one, I could generally get like, three, four hours of sleep. But till I had that meal, it was, you just sit there, you lay there and suffer. See, I've kind of figured it out now to where I'll work at night until 5 a.m. And then my body will have no choice but to shut down. <laughs> and like, that's what works for me now is that like, I'll work till about four or five in the morning. I'll have my last meal and then I'm exhausted. But, but between cardio and work, and all the things I do throughout the day, and then working through the night, I will, I'll be exhausted by four or five in the morning. And then I will take the dogs out, I'll play with them, and then, because they don't give a fuck five in the morning, they don't care. And then I will pass the fuck out. And that's it. Ah, that's one approach. Yeah. <laughs> just go until your body physically can't go anymore. Yeah, and that, that's just how everything's always been for me, is I always have to just go until I can't fucking go anymore and then i'm good uh maybe i have to take that approach next time i've never I, never been a been a you know like you, you know stimulate don't annihilate guy i've never been a oh moderation guy like i even worked with him with a coach who did uh refeeds or 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 high carb days every saturday with whatever food like whatever high carb food you wanted like pancakes or whatever it is and like for whatever reason, my brain works in. It, it's very linear. Where like he was like, "Oh, just eat to satiation." I'm like, "No, no, no, that's not like not." There's there needs to be parameter. <laughs> so everything in my life is that way to where like it has to be set up to where there's no choice but to but to do the hard things. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know exactly what you're saying. I used to be in that same exact boat. Like, it. Yeah, it was rough. If I got one thing off plan, it was going to be all, like, won't stop eating until I'm in physical pain. Well, yeah, and I guess, like, now that I'm older, I would rather just diet straight, right? Just have a straight plan with, like, small refeeds of clean food because they're not as palatable. And they don't stimulate, like, my blood sugar as much. Because I do find, as you get older, your blood sugar definitely does affect your not only your mood but your performance and like how how your digestion goes and everything else and like now that i'm older like i hate being gassy hate being bloated hate feeling like shit so i'm like if i won't eat a food that i know makes me feel like garbage just because i don't want to <laughs> and so it was like that that idea the ideology and that plan didn't work for me 
even though it worked for people for 30 years and this guy was super, super renowned and like had a ton of awesome clients. But that approach didn't work for me because I was never the kind of person. Like if I'm gonna like get setting here, do something and you want me to refeed, give me like a refeed of like more of whatever else I'm having because then I'll have a greater propensity of staying more Yeah, that makes sense. I tended to do a lot of just increasing the amount of whatever was on my plan. So yeah. if I was doing more rice, if I was doing sweet potato, that's what I tended to gravitate towards over whatever burgers or whatever else people eat on refeeds or cheat meals. Yeah. So uh, you made a little bit of little comment about your training. You're not really a stimulate, don't annihilate person. No. How do how do you think about training? What what is your structure or thought process about training look like? So here's the thing: is I go back and forth. I obviously I believe in progressive overload. Like you need some some sort of progressive overload uh, physiologically to stimulate muscle. What I don't agree with, and what I find is is that there are some personality types and some people that respond to a little more volume. And this is something I learned from powerlifting and strongman uh, when I trained for them competitively was that it's a lot of heavy fucking over uh, uh, progressive overload volume. So going to failure doesn't actually like it does. It does stimulate muscle growth. It does stimulate hypertrophy. But if you're trying to progress progressively overload in the strength community, everybody knows if you go to that point of like, where you're not getting grinders, where like the reps are still look all look the fucking same, and you're just doing it over and over and over and over and over. So let's say you're squatting like 450 for sets of five. You do five, six sets of that. And it would just be constant, belligerent, uh, repetitive um, trauma to the body. And essentially, when we're in the gym, we're trying to simulate trauma with progressive overload. So I. For the past two years, I've been a two-set guy where one set was almost like a loading set where it was heavy as humanly possible for about eight to 12 reps uh, with a with a movement that warranted it. And then thereafter, I would do a back-off set of either a rest pause or I would do uh, a set of 20-25 or whatever it is. And then I move on to the next movement. What I've been doing as of lately is I will do one or two loading sets, maybe even three, if the movement feels really good, until my strength starts to dip. And then once my strength dips, I will do the back off set, and then I'll move on, because I'm trying to squeeze the most juice out of every single movement. Not saying I'm not going to failure, not saying I'm like not necessarily pushing myself as far, but what I'm finding is, is that is for the integrity of my joints, for my CNS, for um, my own training, I definitely prefer a little more volume than just super low volume, but still progressively overloading, still doing more weight than I did last time or still doing a technique that is more challenging than last time. Um, but not necessarily doing two sets and walking away. Really kind of like if something feels good or if there's a movement that's like I'm getting a lot out of, sitting with it for a little while until it's not benefiting me anymore. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I tend to, I use a lot of, I work up to a top set and then a back off set where 
I have some kind of intensity technique, drop sets, partials, mm -hmm. whatever makes sense for that specific movement. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you're saying you probably end up doing what, like three or four working sets per movement then? No. Compared to two? Like it's between two and three most of the time. So like it depends on the movement, right? So like let's say like the leg press is a great example. Like you can do two sets on the leg press and they can be all out and you can go to fucking failure and it'll feel great. But man, like leg press, some leg press is so fucking good. Like they just do. And I'll do an extra heavy fucking set. I'll rest two, three minutes and I'll do another loading set. Because sometimes that first set of leg press is so heavy that like you get a little apprehensive to push it as far as you can. And then you do it and you're like, oh, like that really wasn't that fucking bad. <laughs> and then so, so, you, so you add a little more. And then you do another top set. But, like, coherently, you can't discount that last set because you put a lot of effort, time, energy, and effort into it. So I do count it as a working set. But if you can go heavier or if you can push the same weight just as far, if not further, then do another working set. You know, that's the whole propensity of doing each set. Each set, each attempt, just as good, if not better, than the last attempt. And if it's not, then you got to move on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There, my first couple of movements each day, I feel that same way. I get going, but I could get to my top set and do it, and I could actually get more reps the second time just because my body is a little more primed and ready to go yeah. for that movement. And mentally, like, I prove to myself I'm safe. I've had so many injuries. There's a lot of things where you know, I'm a little iffy on until I do – so I do a set and then I can push it even farther after that. Yeah, I've had my fair share of injuries uh, and surgery. So I, I myself would rather do a loading set or a top set that I know I can do, feel how it feels, and then push it, than do something like out the gate that is like fucking risky. You know what I'm saying? So that's why I've adopted the approach I've adopted is because like, a, it gives me wiggle room that if something feels good, I can get the most juice out of it that I possibly can. And B, I also find that there's something about, especially like hack squats or deadlifts or even like some chest movements to where like when you do two or three sets, especially when it's a fly movement or when it's a hack squat movement or anything that stretches the long head of a muscle, that I find that with a little more volume, it just like really stretches and like fuck and like fucks everything up to the point that like I do feel like a heavy top set uh, and then maybe one or two uh, two lighter sets or maybe like two top sets just a little more volume added to it really not only adds that GPP that general physical preparedness but it also adds that other element to where like you're getting the most out of that fucking exercise that you can and you're not hopping around to like five six seven machines in a day you're doing two movements or three movements a muscle group and then you're just done. You're fried. You're good. And not only does your workout take less time, but you're getting the most out of the least. You're really picking the most advantageous. Oh, you're back. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. I tend to, especially after my injury, if there... I find like two or three movements that feel good. I have no issues with them. Like it's not irritating anything. I will do 
a lot more sense on those specific movements. Yeah. So what do you feel like when you think about finding movements that work well for you and do you have a certain uh, sequence you would do them in? Like I follow a lot of what John Meadows uh, preached and I have a movement before my big compounds generally. Like if I'm doing uh, leg day, I'm probably going to do a leg curl or leg extension variation, get things moving, get things ready to go before I move it, go into my top set. Yeah. Or, or my big movement for that day. Or are you more like the Joe Bennett and a lot of people's approach where you'll do whatever little warmups and your first movement is your biggest movement? So I have done both. And what I find works the best for me is almost like a John Meadows to where like, I love smashing my hamstrings before hack squats, before leg press, before heavy, heavy barbell squats, before front squats and all that other stuff. Even I've been even experimenting with heavy lunges and like really smashing those hamstrings not only helps perpetuate knee health, but I find that my, my CNS overall is a lot, a lot more engaged. So I find I like that. Well, especially that I have a pec tendon rupture that I have metal in my chest over. I'd rather do like a chest fly, like a high, like a more intense chest fly with a moderate amount of weight, but full range of motion before any of my presses whatsoever, because I'm not going back to the OR or even like before back, I'll do like an assisted pull up or pull ups or whatever it is to really like get my whole posterior chain firing and everything else before I do like maybe a deadlift, heavy row variation. I like that. Um, especially with biceps and triceps, I'd rather warm up with like, not warm up, but necessarily like smash the muscle group at first with like some kind of cable movement that has tension all the way throughout. Um, and then uh, I would say with shoulders, shoulders are my hardest body part, body part to work, but doing some kind of like machine or or something that like really pre-exhaust, not pre-exhaust, but like can hit the lateral head hard with a machine so that the whole muscle group is already warm. So that way when I go to my presses or I go to like, heavy dumbbell lateral raise or whatever it is, like I don't have to worry about the, the joint integrity. So I do find that way works a lot better for me. And I find that I get more out of my, I mean, like not only feet, but I can do my heavier motion heavier because there's already blood in the area. If that makes sense. Oh, a hundred percent. So when it comes to my shoulder training, I actually am big on, I always start my shoulder day with rear delts. So it gets everything moving. It's some, it's something most people neglect. Mm. And I think it makes a, so my, I feel more stable too when I've done something like a rear delt fly before pressing. And I feel like it's enhanced my shoulders overall look because most people have uh, pretty good front delts from any pressing they do. Chest, like if it's chest or shoulders, it's almost all front delt. And then, uh, lateral raises, I prefer like a machine or cable because how the strength curve works. Dumbbells, there's virtually no tension at the bottom on the uh, muscle. And then the farther you get out, the more tension it becomes. So it's really inconsistent. So yeah. I like a cable or machine on my lateral raises. But uh, do you do any front delt specific training? Because I know I have it in many years. 
I used to, I don't anymore. I have gotten back into behind the neck presses and heavy standing presses. I do find that those work really, really well for me, especially having a powerlifting and background. I find that just having having 225 over your head or on the shoulder uh, uh, for, for a heavy standing press, for whatever reason, especially towards the end of the workout, usually the end of the workout, really helps squeeze everything, like every little every little drop out of the shoulders. And it helps, like, you know, produce that, that kind of that gnarly strength, that raw strength out of the shoulders that develops them. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I always looked at, like, like old school, you know, old school physique and how how they developed shoulders. And it was a lot of heavy overhead pressing, things like that. So, you know, I still incorporate those things. And I always found that when my shoulders were the best were when they were the strongest. I also agree with doing rear delts first when I found when I did heavy face, when I did face pulls, uh, banded face pulls, or did reverse flies or heavy bench pressing. Uh, my back was already engaged and my lats were already engaged. My presses always went a lot smoother. So that's something that I I always did when I was powerlifting. Um, that really, really, really helps me a lot. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And a big component I preach to all my clients is I would rather sacrifice a little bit for, of performance on big compounds, like people that are scared they're going to lose some weight or some reps on their big movements if they don't do them first. I think the benefit you get of staying healthy over the next 10 years, not having an injury setback is going to lead to better results in the, at the end of that time frame mm-hmm. than someone that, Oh, I can get 3% more out of this workout or this heavy movement if I do it first, but I don't think it's worth the risk. So like, where like the most of the injuries don't happen on isolated machines. They happen on compound lifts. And so necessarily, especially when it's a compound lift you enjoy, you're trying to progress it, progress on it all the time. And I find that when, when you can do it as efficiently as humanly possible, you can't use as much weight, especially on like a squat or a deadlift. You know, when you're doing it for the purpose of hypertrophy, the, the objective isn't to move as much load as possible. It's to stimulate as much muscle as possible. And those two are to- totally different fucking things. You know, if you're chasing the weight all the time, just do some power lifting. That's point A to point B with the weight. Um, it's a different objective than bodybuilding. Bodybuilding is moving the load in a coherent fashion that is stimulating most muscle possible. You still need a good amount of load. You still need enough weight that can stimulate the muscle. But inherently, how you're doing it is what is going to change the is going to change the difference between an intermediate and an advanced lifter is how the weight is being moved and how it's being engaged overall. You know, you can do a deadlift and bounce it off the floor and fucking yank with your lower back and everything else, but you're not stimulating as much back per se as somebody who's coming up to the top, squeezing their rhomboids together, coming down with control, not bouncing it off the bottom. And then pushing off their legs at the bottom only to squeeze at the top with their back. So it goes without saying that it's not how heavy the movement is. It's how it's being performed. So inherently, uh, a lot of clients will work out, will train with me. And they'll look at me with like a starstruck face where they're like, I am moving less weight than I've ever moved. 
and I'm fucking shot. And I'm like, because you're moving it properly. And right. it, so, it, uh, give give me sixty seconds. Keep talking on this. And yeah. how would you go about picking a move like a movement that fits well? Like, if you want to train back or train quads, like, how would you go about picking a movement that would, when done properly, could be a more effective movement than just people that think they have to back squat without putting any thought into if that is actually a good quad movement for them. So, so for back, I always find, so the number one thing is like, if it's a client, they have to enjoy it. So I pick a movement they already know and enjoy and are good at because a big, big part of training is enjoying it. The other part, then I break down the movement and I watch how they do it. Where are the strongest and where are they the weakest? Wherever they're the weakest is what I am. So a lot of people are, are not as strong in the bottom because it's a lot of hamstrings. So what I'll do is I'll make them pull from a deficit. Whatever deficit they're the weakest in is where I'll pull it. I don't even add a band to the bottom or whatever it is to make that compound movement even harder. So then there's that accommodating resistance up into the top to where the top may be 300, 400 pounds, but the bottom is even lighter, but you're at a deficit. So it's a great motion. So now there's more of work in that weak point than, than you had. From unsafe with 400 pounds to super safe 180, but a lot harder with a band and a deficit added in. And then with that being said, now we're slowing down the tempo. We're making it something that's e- even harder because I want 60, 45 to 60 seconds of work, just straight work per set because that's that's what's going to get the optimal hypertrophy response. And so with that being said, I want them, again, I'm going to squeeze every movement for as much as I can out of it. So then not only are you performing it with a, with a controlled cadence, but we're performing it at your weakness with accommodating resistance and and everything is kind of set up so that way it's as hard as humanly possible and you're using as much as uh, the the least amount of load in your weak point as you possibly can then with that being said now we're overloading on a movement that you're or that you thought you were strong at but we've kind of accommodated it so that way it's a lot fucking harder than you thought it was that's awesome do you have a a movement that you really like to band or reverse band to for that accommodating resistance resistance uh, uh, because I I know the hack squat reverse banding the hack squat feels amazing for me. Henley rows. Okay, nice. Because rows are always done wrong. Everybody's always standing way too upright or jerking the weight or moving it across their thighs or making it new trap movement. And when you do a penlay row, you are straight up and down, you know, you're uh, parallel with the floor and you're just pulling it to your waist and coming down. Now, if I throw a red band over the bar and you have maybe, I don't know, like 135, which is pretty heavy or 115. And I use the 25 pound plates that are even lower to create more range of motion. And I even make you stand on a box then now that only is the band causing more tension on the way down and more accommodating resistance on the way up so that way when you squeeze that bar it's even heavier at the top and then it's pulling your lats apart on the way down but now you have greater range of motion where it doesn't touch the floor until you're completely out so now you're do- not only are you doing a row properly 
but it's even harder at the top, which is what, which is optimal for back stimulation. Like if a row was heaviest at the top, you're going to get the most erectors out of it. You're going to get the most lats out of it. You're going to get the peak contraction that you want. And then you're going to really stretch out that muscle all the way through the bottom, which is exactly what you want to kind of simulate growth and everything else is that stretch factor as well. So now you're completing a row, but instead of jerking 225, 315, 405 that you see a lot of these guys doing, now you're forced to be parallel with the floor, stretch all the way down, stretch all the way up, and get the full range of motion that you necessarily want out of that movement. And then you're, you're getting the most back stimulation for the least amount of weight once again. And now your your lower back isn't at risk. You're not going to tear, tear rotator cuff or whatever it is because you're not jerking a 315. And then as a result, you know, your back is fucking sore. And that the row is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, and back is something that is improperly trained the most, in my opinion. Yes. I feel it's rough. Way harder to train than legs. Legs is just... So do you have the propensity to endure pain? Same as biceps. It's just pain. And, but if it's back, it's not necessarily pain. It's more of a controlled, it's more of a controlled aggression where like, can you pull this full range of motion, squeeze your shoulder blades at the top and do that until like your, your, your terries are fucking sharing shaking and you cannot pull if somebody gave you fifteen hundred dollars in cash. I like it. So, uh, because obviously we both coach, there's going to be a big influx of everyone that coaches or gyms. Obviously, a lot of new people coming into it. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making? Not only just New Year's, but in general in the gym or with nutrition. Uh. The drug culture. I find that the biggest mistake, people cover mistakes up with drugs, whether it's coaches or clients. And uh, a lot of people, you know, take cannabis or use butyrol or do whatever it is they have to do to cover up the mistakes of not being able to do diet, not sleep that they need, not doing the cardio, not too, and then getting their ass them by somebody who's not necessarily the thing doing the work. But, yeah. I I find a lot of people try to hide drugs, and I wish that people preps or get a full five six seven without any first and really figured out their body did what they needed to do before they even dabbled. So, and I see this with clients, I see this with coaches, I see this with a lot of people. They really, really rely on using the supplements and the gear uh, to get their, their their gains and their benefit rather than using which inherently was should be, which is the training. See, that's something I really, really agree with. People try to cover up just mistakes with training, lack of effort in training, uh, poor nutrition just by throwing more drugs at it. And then when you get clients that have been used to using way higher doses, either by themselves or their friend recommended or previous coaches, and you pull them back, you get a lot of questions because they're not getting necessarily the same speed of results they were getting when they're freaking running crazy amounts of trend in the off season when it has 
Like, mm-hmm. in my opinion, no purpose to be in there. And you see people just doing this, taking stacks that are insane for the situation that they're in. But yeah. they got they felt like they got better progress before. So when you're trying to take a smarter, safer approach, and they're seeing slightly slower progress, it's it's an interesting thing to try to work with a client that has done previous like higher doses than you would recommend or be comfortable with a client using, mm-hmm. and they now they feel like they're not seeing the same level of results because now we have to try to improve the training, improve the nutrition to a point where we can make up for some of that band-aid that they were using with the extra gear. So I started following a lot of the British natural bodybuilders. Uh, I love their conditioning and their look and how consistent they are. And the reason why I've done so, and the reason why I've kind of shown people them is like, I've kind of shared them with a lot of my clients and a lot of people that I know. And I'm like, do you think you could beat that guy on stage? And they're like, no. I'm like, what if I told you he was drug free and he just trains harder than you? Hey. And that's really all it is, is that, yeah, they're just more consistent. They're prepping for six months. They're training fucking harder and they're more dedicated than you are, you know, and you know, and, and, and when you kind of demonstrate that to somebody and they have that wake up call and they realize that they can save a thousand dollars a year on supplements and they just have to put in the work, it really becomes reality to them. And like, and they have to, they have to believe it themselves though. And until they really, really see that they, this is the long game, this is the marathon and, and the, and it kind of like kind of kicks in, then everything starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, exactly. Getting to them, getting them to that point can be a little tricky sometimes, but as soon as they realize that, it becomes so much easier. That and it's like your life is easier. You're not as like emotional or feeling like shit or like all these things that come with the supplements that we don't want. It's just a. It's just a. Uh, it's really not improving your quality of life in any way, shape, or form. To be honest with you. So, you know, the reason why we got into this was to improve our lives, was to be happier, healthier, and to be fucking jacked. And if you can do that without jeopardizing your health, like, by all means, why would you? Yeah, none of us signed up to be a pin cushion, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fucking apparent. So, you know, I've been really, really, you know, uh, I've been fortunate to, to help a lot of people kind of, like, see and I've been help, uh, fortunate to like help a lot of like a lot of people who had a lot of bad coaches that prior throw them on, you know, too many fat burners and things like that kind of realize what it was where they were fucking up. And for that, they're incredibly grateful, but they are set up for the long term, knowing how to diet, knowing how to do nutrition, knowing how much cardio that is actually expected of them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've actually had a few clients leave because like other coaches were basically promising the world they could oh you can do all this like get faster progress and I look back now year year and a half and I can't say they made zero improvements but I don't see as much as I think there could have been 
See, the problem yeah. is the problem is that drugs work, right? That's drugs true. work, and I think I think it, what it is is like a, a, again, it covers up mistakes. And yeah, sure, you can place decent at a local level or at your you know your your town show or whatever it is, you know, kind of making mistakes and cutting corners and things like that. And then what happens is, is that there's somebody who comes along or you watch other people train or whatever it is that are just at that next level. And when you see it and when you kind of like, when you witness it for yourself and you're like, kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh shit, I am not as on top or I'm not as good or I'm not as hardworking as I thought I was. And you're seeing they're getting twice, twice as many, uh, twice as many results on half as much risk, it, it, you realize what you need to do. Oh, yeah. I think we've all had that experience where we we got a chance to train with someone that actually trains hard. Like, they're, they're above us in the understanding of how to push ourselves. And we have that one workout with them, get absolutely buried, and then you realize, like, what you thought was training hard really wasn't when you get exposed to someone that can take it to that next level. And then from there, either you justify, you can't train that hard. That's overtraining, whatever, whatever. Or you realize I need to step up my game and moving forward. Now all your training is more effective. Yes. Yeah. That's a fun time. I'd still remember exactly when that happened to me for like by the second movement, we were starting the second movement on legs and I literally fell out of the machine. <laughs> Whoops. That was fun. Yeah, I, 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 I've been fortunate to where all of my coaches and all of my um, mentors growing up were high-end natural strength athletes. And, and it's funny because they were both Puerto Rican too, which is just hysterical to me. Um, and uh, it was Brian and Dave Avila – and Dave Avila went to the Arnold's for powerlifting. And he taught me how to squat. He taught me how to deadlift. He taught me how to train. And I got in almost show shape in 35 days with that guy. And then uh, the second guy I worked with, which was her strong man, was Brian out of Kingston, New York. And he was fucking amazing as well. And they both trained natural and moved incredible amounts of weight. And it was just, I trained harder. I'm more consistent. And I don't get as flustered as you do. They kept their head straight the whole time. And there's a lot to be learned there. Oh, yeah. I've seen people have really good preps, make a lot of progress, and absolutely ruin themselves the last week mentally just being, like, unsure, negative, like, not sleeping, all these things because they can't really lock in on the mental side. Well, prep is really a mental game, if you think about it. If you can get down to where you're constantly pumping yourself full of positivity, and, like, you'll see it, especially in women clients, people who have that love and support and that positivity, like, they're being, like, given to them all the time, you know? And they get, like, they get it, and they just, they run with it. And they have that positivity, they have that attitude, and nothing's going to fucking stop them. The prep is so easy. And then you have like these people with self doubt, and if they can't lock in like what their mindset has to be in the beginning, then it's just kind of like all downhill from there. 
Oh, exactly. The mindset side of things is a game changer. That's so many people. It's, I don't know, it's hard to say, but it's, it doesn't seem like it's for everyone because they can't get their mind to a point where it's going to be what they need it to be. Like a lot of self-doubt, like people do their first shows and think they were supposed to win and get discouraged. Like there's a certain level of the mental side that is absolutely required. There's some people that have better mindsets than others, but there's a minimum threshold that I don't think if you, if you don't meet that, you, I don't think competing is for you. So it, 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 yeah, I think it's funny. I think a lot of people should compete, should do their first five, six years unenhanced because if I could go back and I tell them my fiance this all the time, if I could go back to my younger self and tell myself all the repercussions that would have happened, I wouldn't have tried it in the first place until I was much older. So, you know, with that being said, I think, I think a lot of people make that grave mistake and I really just try to give people the full perspective. Now, you know, the information that I didn't have when I was younger and, you know, and really just try to give them, you know, all of the information possible so that they can make the most educated decision that they can. Yeah, that's that's obviously a great approach. But I feel like this has been an awesome episode. And I think we could probably do many more of these. We Dude, didn't get, love get it. into I'm nutrition or anything. With, uh, with some of the strength athletes, uh, like Full Tilt Barbell, Train to Gain, and Leroy Walker. And it's so funny because, like, to them, like the whole bodybuilding mindset and the training and everything else is very foreign to them. And I'm the only bodybuilder with like that, that kind of uh, that 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 integration of of strength and powerlifting with them that I can kind of integrate both worlds. And so it's one of those things where like if I was to like you know maybe get you involved or have something where we had a roundtable talk of like all, all of us together, I think it'd be super super interesting to see all the perspectives. Yeah, I would definitely be down to do that. I think we can. Uh, you guys were doing an Instagram live the other day. I'm sure we can find a way to record maybe a uh, Zoom call with all of us, and we can record the audio off of that. Yeah, I'm well, sure there's something. It was always it's, it was a really really huge pleasure to meet you when I met you at Big Tech. So I think I'm going to go Big Tech today to train because it's Christmas Eve, and I know everywhere is going to be fucking closed. So <laughs> that was an awesome gym. I was pleasantly surprised. It is. You got to stop at House of Games next time too. That one, that gym's amazing as well. Yeah, I think that those are the two you told me about, right? Yeah, House of Games is absolutely fantastic too. That's where all the Olympia competitors go. Okay, nice. So, what Olympia competitors are in that area? Yeah, name wise, they're fucking gnarly there. Like all the guys there are like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's awesome. Are there any big names there? Yeah, yeah, there's a few. There's actually um, there's actually quite a few big names. I know that Branch Warren is trained there. Ben Chow is trained there. Jessica Padilla trains there. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I know there's way more guys than that. Uh, I just can't think of them right now. Um, uh, who is the Bikini Miss Olympia? Uh, Texera? Alexi? Uh, I can't remember her first name. Uh, my fiance loves her, and I can't remember her name, but she's there. 
oh man, there's like so there's so so many really really great athletes out of there. Hey, that's a that's a fun environment to be in. It's one thing that I've got here in Tampa more than I've ever had. Yeah, it was like top level pros, like. Dude, Karen if I if it wasn't around. 45 minutes away, I'd be there every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So. All right. Uh, one last question before we go. So for coaching or people that want to sign up with you or anyone, how does someone go about picking a coach? Because there's a lot, lot of air quotes coaches out there that I, I struggle when they talk and advise people on some things so how do they how does someone weed out uh, a good coach and a not so good coach experience and connection so they need to have experience getting the results that you want with somebody right so i have always hired people that were much much older than me and the reason being in that they have competed for 15 20 years already and they have that experience they've seen everything and they've done done the work so that's the first thing is that the the experience and the second thing is connection if you don't trust if you don't have a connection with the person that you're working with you're not going to want to go to hell and back for them and that's a part of the journey is that you're going to have to do things that are super super uncomfortable and the things that you don't want to do and things that are incredibly difficult to get done because they've told you to do so for the process. And if you don't have a connection with them and you don't trust them in the first place and you're not willing to do every fucking word they say to the T, then inevitably like you're with the wrong person. So, you know, the the two things that I can say when you're picking your coach is A, pick somebody with the experience and the knowledge that you that you admire that will get you the result that you want. And then B is having somebody that you have a connection with that you're willing to trust fully and completely. I find that that is the hardest thing for people to grasp is being with somebody that they can completely trust and follow through on, you know, and that's why coaches are expensive and that's why they charge whatever they charge is not necessarily for their benefit financially. I mean, it is, but it's, it's putting your skin in the game enough that like you're going to do what they say because you don't want to lose that money per se. So, you know, and I find like a lot of people like, well, like, oh, I'll take on clients for free or blah, blah, blah. And, you know, from experience, whenever you take those clients on for free, they never appreciate the knowledge or the expertise that you're giving them. Very few actually do. They do 50%. And it's because you're at a lower premium. You know, they're not giving up anything. They're not putting their skin in the game for your knowledge or for your expertise. So if I could really parlay anything to people who are looking at a good coach who's experienced, like ask yourself if you have a connection with that for their, with their personality and everything else. And is it somebody you can really trust every word that they're saying? If they told you, Hey, we're behind and we need, I need you doing two hours of cardio a day. Are you going to follow through? Are you going to trust their word? Even on the days that you look flat, that you look like shit and you're, and you're second guessing yourself, you have to be able to like take it a step back not focus on the mirror and just execute. Hey, exactly. So do you think experience is always related to age? Because no. I'm, I'm in the situation where I've done things earlier stuff. Like I've trained and coached people that were 15, 20 years older than me. And it was more of the, the commitment that I've made to get better at what I do 
not just like, oh, I've been around for Listen, I people have made the mistake <laughs> with me, actually, where they were like, oh, he's too young. And then they've used a coach that was older. And they're like, wow, like he actually knew what he was talking about. And it's like, so you have to go with someone with experience in their field. Like, so what I'm saying is, is that like somebody who has experience being intertwined and really loving and caring about the entirety of the process. So like you choose a coach with the experience, getting the results that you want. So that pertains to their knowledge to their experience, to how long they've been in the game, everything. So experience comes with knowledge and time. So I wouldn't necessarily pick somebody who's older. I'd pick somebody who has the love and dedication for their craft that you aspire for or that you look up to. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like, look at high-end coaches that are super, super young. You know, uh, I would say, for instance, like you or Matt Jansen or like some of these guys that are younger than most of the coaches, but they're still getting the results and the and the and the out the outcome that everybody wants. They are not necessarily older. It's it's about their dedication, love, and experience that they have working with the at the athletes that they have. Oh, exactly. One thing I always like to have people do is get when they're talking to a coach for the first time get them to explain why they would have them do a certain thing. So like, and you know, that's a big part of it too. Like how many, how many times have we heard old coaches do shitty things because <laughs> they're just stuck in the old way. So, so you know, like using, you know, doing all kinds of crazy diuretic uh, protocols or, you know, cutting water for like the, the term, whole week. The term like trust the process or switching somebody to all fish or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? That makes no fucking sense on paper. You know what I'm saying? So there's, there's, there's a lot of merit in having love and experience for your craft, which means constantly expanding your knowledge. So not necessarily always just going with the older coach. Cause you know, if you're, if you're working with a dinosaur, like, you know, you're going to do dinosaur things and it's, it, you're going to probably suffer for no reason. <laughs> so there's also that aspect in it too. Uh, not saying old school doesn't work. I'm just saying there are ways to mitigate suffering only the ways that you have to. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to have to do this again. Maybe yeah, we'll set absolutely. Up, I'm totally 100% down. Yeah, we'll, and we'll try to set up like maybe Instagram Live or something with uh, your buddies that you were on Instagram with last night. Because I think it could be an interesting conversation. I've been around powerlifting a little bit, but not nearly as much as bodybuilding, obviously. Yeah, a lot of my first clients when I started uh, taking in-person clients were powerlifters. And it was funny because I, I got one guy to transform his entire life doing so. And so there's a lot of merit and there's a lot of lessons that can be learned for bodybuilders in powerlifting that I think there needs to be a crossover to a degree. with like, Especially with uh, accommodating resistance and training modalities and volume and things like that. There's a lot of things that like a lot of the powerlifters have figured out that that's not necessarily all the bodybuilders have yet. That was a perfect example. He did exactly what you're saying. He came to West Coast and brought a lot of the chains and bands and accommodating stuff into bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And it's made a big difference. Yeah. So. Listen, man, I really, really enjoyed this. If my fiance goes to Spain in February, I will definitely come train with you. 
Um, but yeah, we need to do this again. We need to say better contact and like, yeah, let's do this. Like whatever you need or whatever you want me to come back on. Or if I can get uh, the guys on with you, like that'd be fucking awesome. Yeah, for sure. Before we leave, what's your Instagram or how would people get a hold of you? If they um, want so Instagram is going to be vicious, strong fitness, vicious, underscore, strong, underscore, vi- uh, fitness. And my email is going to be, uh, Vince, a mayor at gmail.com. All lowercase one word M A I E R. And then if you want to just get a hold of me, you can just direct message me on Instagram or you can find my Facebook, which is Vince Mayer, uh, V-I-N-C-E-N-T-M-A-I-E-R. And that's pretty much it. Like I pretty much uh, I take select individuals. Usually I do a FaceTime or whatever it is. And if I find that we have chemistry or if we if I find that you're the kind of individual that like I am excited to work with every single day and I'm willing to give 200 percent to, then I would love Love, love, love to give this shirt off my back for any one of my people. Hey, that's awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We'll definitely do this again soon. All right, brother.